You are listening to the podcast Being Donor Conceived Stories from Children and Parents. I'm your host. My name is Sabrina, and I live in Copenhagen with my husband and our donor conceived daughter, Mita. In this second episode, we are hearing from the people who are donor conceived. So they thought that they needed to find this perfect moment to to tell me the perfect timing and there is no perfect timing. I want to know what it's like to grow up knowing that you have a donor somewhere, that half your DNA comes from a person you might never meet. However, I know my approach is a bit biased. I mean, I can only talk to the people who know their donor conceived. What about the many people who were never told? Are they better off? It's better to come in a loving, supportive environment from your parent than finding out randomly in a DNA test or through an argument. So having secrets in families, no matter what they are, is just plain unhealthy. One thing my husband and I talked a lot about in the beginning was exactly how much we should say and how we should say it. So some people claim that, you know, it's confusing the child if we tell them too soon. Do you think we could confuse her by telling her? No, because we are raising her so she knows it. She has never not known it. We have been telling her about the donor from approximately when she was born. So there's never this moment where suddenly she realizes that her heritage is a different one than she thought it was. I at least think I, for one, tend to tell the story of her conception as something special. You know, the it's it's also, you know, complete fairy tale narrative. You know, there's this mom and a dad who couldn't be a mom and a dad. And then they went to the magical doctor's office who were able to to make sure that mom got pregnant using a donor, right? Thank you, baby doctor. Yeah, thank you, baby doctor. Uh, and in the beginning, I would mostly talk to her about sperm. You know, you need an egg, an egg, a sperm, and a uterus to make a baby. Those are the three main components you need at hand. And would tell her, you know, mom had an egg, mom had a uterus, but neither mom nor dad had any sperm. Do you think that our daughter will have any questions about being donor-conceived growing up? Of course she will. Hopefully it's not something where she will sit Uh, one day with a very long list of questions. Hopefully it's something where along the way uh, we will add more and more details uh, of why it is we ended up in this situation. As she grows older, the narrative we tell her about her conception will become more and more detailed. You had probably already guessed that we might be a bit more open than the average donor-conceived family. After all... They don't all make podcasts. But this is something all the donor-conceived families I talk to have been wondering as well. And they all agree on not keeping secrets. Here's Haley, twin mom. Yeah, I think um, some families, especially your heterosexual families, can get away with not telling because, you know, no one's going to assume that you've used a donor, whereas... With LGBT families, for example, obviously most people will assume that a donor has been involved, you know, regardless of who the donor is, there's a third party has been involved in creation of the family. 
But I would say, yeah, you, you don't have to tell, but what kind of example are you setting to your children by not telling? Um, and I'm not saying you've got to shout from the rooftops and tell everybody, but it's weird. I've, I'm obviously, I'm a gay woman and I came out um, when I was only 18 or 19. So, you know, over 20 odd years ago now, <laughs> sound old. Um, but there was one thing I did learn from that experience is that when you hide something, it, it becomes something to be ashamed of and you can't really embrace the situation. And it's something that becomes awkward um and and I liken it when I when I found out I was donor conceived weirdly there was a lot of similarities between being a gay woman when I was young coming out and trying to hide that element of me than when I found out I was donor conceived because the themes of shame hiding those things secrets leading a double life all of those things were very very similar and is one thing I'm very passionate about as a parent is I don't want our children um, to feel like they've got to hide any part of themselves and I would include donor conception in that. So I think there's a difference between privacy and secrecy is what I would say. Did you catch that? Between Haley's strong points about hiding and feeling ashamed, she also quickly mentioned that she herself is donor conceived and just so happens to be the parent of donor conceived twins. The way Haley found out, and the way she's chosen to tell her twins, could not be more different. Here's Haley again, telling the story of how she found out that she was donor conceived. I was one of the first IVF babies ever conceived um, under the the first ever IVF clinic in the world at Bournehall in um, Cambridgeshire in the UK. Under um, they were the first two consultants to do um, to do IVF, and I knew that growing up, and it was a celebrated story. Um, but what I didn't know is what I found out um, sadly in a family argument um, in 2015. Um, it was suggested in this argument that my dad wasn't my biological father. Um, and then, yeah, it, it basically came out after we did um, a straightforward paternity test, me and my dad, and it came out that they had used um, a donor as part of the IVF sort of procedure. Um, and yeah, it was it was life changing to find that out. I mean, I was in my it was just before we started looking to start our own family um, with my wife. I had a lot going on in my life at the time and it was just a huge shock and it kind of made me. Um, reevaluate a lot of things that I thought about myself, things that I'd attributed to my dad that raised me. So my my blonde hair, my fair skin, you know, my certain things about my personality. And whilst some of those things I probably maybe have got from my dad because he raised me, it, it kind of just, you, you kind of look in the mirror and not quite sure who's looking back at you. Um, and that was a really unnerving time for me. Um, and it, it was a huge shock to find out so late in life. They were basically told by the professionals um, not to tell. Um, I think that was kind of what most parents were told. Um, and yeah, they were going, the, the phrase we use in the UK is take it to the grave. They, they would never have never have told me. And to be honest, if it, if it wasn't for that argument, um, and it was obviously suggested to me in an argument, I probably wouldn't have had the conversation with my parents about it, um, which then prompted the disclosure. Um, but obviously a lot of donor-conceived people that are of my age now and, you know, our children, there's always a chance they're going to find out through commercial DNA testing, which is obviously huge now. Um, so I think that's, although, you know, it's another reason to be open and honest, because I think even if you think you can keep the secret, um, DNA doesn't lie and certainly commercial DNA testing doesn't lie and people will find out. In this day and age, 
you never know whether or not you'll be able to take your secret to the grave, like Haley's parents plan to. Things happen, tongues slip, DNA kits are easily purchased. Haley was able to keep a great relationship with her parents because she knows they acted out of love, and according to the doctor's recommendation. But because of her experience, she's quite passionate about getting more parents with donor-conceived kids to tell the truth. You wouldn't want what happened to me and what has happened to my siblings as well. So my donor-conceived siblings that I've connected with via DNA, um, only one found out, um, you know, pre-DNA testing. Um, and it, it is a shock and it is um, it can be life-changing um, and it can affect how you see yourself and others, even though that information may come later in life. So there may be people listening to this podcast who haven't told their children, who may be adults even now. It's better to come in a loving, supportive environment from your parent than finding out randomly in a DNA test or through an argument or through divorce, which is another situation that it tends to come out in a lot, uh, late disclosure. Um, so yeah, I would always say it's never too late, but there is... It's never too late to tell, but there are there's always better ways to tell. Um, that would be my advice. It might not be that surprising that Haley has chosen to tell her own kids early on. I just had one or two pressing questions when we're on the matter. How? When? Yeah, I mean, I think the general consensus is that in relation to telling your children that they're donor conceived is that the ideal is that they don't ever remember being told. So they think from around two or three years of age or even before, which, you know, we've been talking to our children, you know, when they were in the womb, you know, with the children's storybooks that are around um, to explain donor conception. Um, and I think because I am donor conceived myself and I was a late discovery donor conceived person, I've seen firsthand the harm and damage that it can cause not to be an open and honest with your children from a very young age. And although it was very different times when my parents were, you know, they had me and were told not to tell me, um, I, I want to try and make sure that my children, um, you know, there is no shame, um, that they're told everything, you know, we're not hiding anything from them, including the donor profile, because at the end of the day, that is information that will help form their identity as children. Um, And I, I want to make, you know, my wife and I are on the same page with that, that we want to give them as much information as they would like. Um, but it is difficult and it's not easy. And I understand that a lot of parents struggle to kind of have those conversations. Um, and I think it, it's it's good that the conversations are happening when the children are young. So, we, you know, with my parent hat on now, if you like, we can work through those awkward conversations to try and, make it normal um, and, and make our children feel like they can ask questions if they want to. Haley's answers are built on her own experiences, but her conclusions are actually quite similar to those of psychologist Lisa Kramer. You might remember Lisa from episode one. She has her own donor-conceived family and works with donor-conceived families in her psychology practice. I asked her those same pressing questions of how and when. There's no too early to tell. You can start the, the story when the child is in your womb. It's the narrative that we have about our family that defines what will occupy the child. So, for instance, in families with gay couples, if the child is 
in a surrounding where, for instance, schoolmates are prejudiced about being a gay family, that will typically be what the child is occupied with. So it doesn't necessarily have to be that you are a donor child, but more that you are a child of a gay couple. And then the donor thing becomes secondary. So the difference between, and there's so many variations, so this will be one variation, of course, but uh, for instance, in families where it's one mother who have decided to have a donor-conceived child, again, it's what the mom is occupied with. If she's occupied with giving the child healthy human relations, then that is what the child will experience. And if the mother is occupied with, have I given my child too little male um, influence, that will be something that the child often will feel that they miss. So what we tend to be full of as parents is what our children will be full of. Being a donor-conceived child is not, is not necessarily something that the child is very occupied with, but it means something, what they, they get from the surroundings that they are occupied with. So we need to be very conscious about what is it that we sort of um, give on to our children? What is it that they, they uh, get the, the sense of from us? Yet another area where privileges follow the heteronormative-looking families. We can choose to tell, where a family with one or two moms might have more Christians from their surroundings. Still, the privilege of getting to choose when to tell your child about their conception should not make you forget to do it at all. As Lisa further explains, that might create its own set of problems. Sometimes I experience that the years just go by and they haven't told the story and it becomes more and more difficult how to tell them. And the lie and the secret becomes more and more in front of it. Often that is the most difficult situations because it means so much to the relationship between the parents and the children that it, that it hasn't been told. And what we know is it's, extremely unhealthy to have secrets in families. You could say that what children do not know will hurt them because the secret always tends to sieve into the family system anyway. We know that having secrets in families, and it goes for every family and every family type, is very unhealthy and it often gives children the feeling of something is wrong here and it must be me. So it becomes an internal way of feeling wrong or beside everything, uh, which is not very healthy for the child. And it gives a certain insecurity in the world. Yeah. So having secrets in families, no matter what they are, is just plain unhealthy. I get a bit emotional listening to Lisa here. How can a child so wanted as any donor-conceived child has to be grow up feeling wrong? Feeling like they're to blame for the whispers and secrecy? I sincerely hope any and every parent will do what they can to avoid that. 
No child should feel that their existence is wrong. No one. Okay, I for one need a bit of sunshine right now. So let me introduce you to Neat from Denmark. She's donor conceived and got to know when she was quite young. Here she is, telling the story of how she was told by her mother. Well, I was seven years old when I found out. I have three cousins who are all adopted. Um, and I started asking her questions one day when she and I were at home. And she seized that opportunity to sit me down and answer some of those questions and then letting me know that they, my parents also needed help. Um, and then she told me about the way I was conceived. Um, my father wasn't present at the time. He wasn't at home, but it's not because he didn't want to let me know. He actually did. Um, it was his idea to, to have a donor-conceived child. Um, and he also said from the very get-go that I needed to know. Um, and obviously my mother was on board with that. Um, so they knew that they wanted to tell me even before I was born. Um, but back when, when I was conceived, they got no information on how to tell or when to tell. Um, so, so they thought that they needed to find this perfect moment to, to tell me the perfect timing. And there is no perfect timing. So, so obviously it was very difficult to find this perfect moment. Were you surprised to find out? Now, you, I know you were very young and barely remember it, but sometimes donor-conceived children, they have this memory of saying, I knew, or they, you know, completely blindsided by it and didn't see it coming. Mm, I don't think it was either one of them, to be honest. I know that growing up, I was always told I looked like my father, um, but I don't think I was blindsided either because, again, I thought it was a cool thing. And so I think back then I just thought of it as, you know, a plus. It, it was a positive thing for me. But I, I didn't know. I definitely didn't know. In many ways, I see Nita's story as perfect. Her mother grabbed an opportunity to tell her. It felt natural. Nita was proud to know. But not all donor-conceived people born more than 20 years ago are so lucky. For Lerge, it was more complicated. Lerge is also donor-conceived, born and raised in Denmark, like Nita. She's also of similar age to Nita. And yet, her story is quite different. Lerge's parents split up when Lerge was still quite young, meaning she grew up with both a dad and a bonus dad, as we say in Danish. When I was 11, uh, my mom told me and... I remember it quite clearly, but not what she said, but I remember uh, we us sitting there and, and then she told me and I remember my response because it was, oh, I knew that. Uh, and I don't know how I, I knew that because nobody ever told me and I don't even know if my, my family knows that my father is not my biological father. But uh, yeah, so I, I remember that clearly that I was like, oh, I knew that. My dad lived um, far from my mom. I was there uh, every third weekend or something. I also connected a lot to my stepdad 
So I some kind of concept about, okay, you can have multiple persons in your life. So maybe that. And then I I remember that my, my dad told me that he was adopted. I had this idea about, okay, uh, I might also be adopted. And I don't know, maybe it's because I have red hair and freckles and none of my parents have it. So I might just think, okay, I might come from another place-ish. Modern families get married, divorce, mix with other families. According to the European statistics, that's quite normal. But in some instances, it can add complexity to the whole donor conception story, like we see with Lage. However, a little complexity is to be preferred to a life in secrecy, feeling wrong, ashamed or rootless. I think Lerge's dad was afraid of losing his daughter. Still, it doesn't sound like he would have had he shared the truth. This experience has left Lerge reflect quite a bit on parenthood. I think maybe as a parent, I would think about different scenarios. What if we get divorced? What if one of us die? Um, How are we going to handle that situation and what I think is that the, the, the roles has to be clear you have to help your child understand the different roles so the child has a natural relation to it because if it becomes a mystery then you you, you probably not have a, a natural relation to it so it just has to be something natural in in the family life and in the relation that uh, you came to the world like this You can also uh, like this, and there are uh, multiple ways that people become parents, uh, and we become parents uh, in this way. And maybe also uh, highlight the fact that uh, me and dad or mom or whoever uh, took the decision to, to have you out of love, and that's what makes a parent. Lerke's recommendation is the same as we've heard before. Talk to your children. Make it natural. Communicate how your child was conceived in love. That you are here to be a parent, no matter what will happen. How could that do anything but strengthen the relationship with your child? So, as you can hear, all the people we talked to, regardless of their own story, told us the same. Tell your children as soon as possible. I asked our psychologist, Lise Kramer, how to naturally have that sort of conversation with a young child. It is very uh, different from culture to culture. Uh, And I do think that my way of explaining it is very Danish. At the same time, I also come from a way of thinking uh, about children that The more specific we can be about the conception story and not magical, the better. Because when we tell magical stories, the children tend to misunderstand it or understand it in a magical way or or, or getting it all wrong. So specifics can be quite good. What we need to, to be aware of is to tell just enough for the child And then the child will come again asking us if we as parents have the openness towards it. So 
So that's what it, what's important. But being too magical about con- conception stories just make children confused in any culture. So no storks or cabbage patch or... <laughs> Please not. Please no storks. <laughs> it almost sounds like you can't tell too much or too often. At least not if you promise to leave out the storks. However... I'm not a lady of few words, and when something occupies my mind, I tend to bring it up again and again and again and again. As maybe an outlier of this scenario, should I hold my horses? I asked psychologist Lisa Kramer what she thought. I think we can be too occupied with passing on the right story. Uh, for instance, if you have a known donor... And you know that there are other uh, donor siblings. Some parents can be very interested in giving their children sisters and brothers, but that doesn't necessarily have to be something that the child is is uh, occupied with. So, what we give interest as parents, we need to be very careful about, because it doesn't necessarily have to be something that the child is 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 wanting. Uh, so, I, yeah, you question: Can we give it too much attention? Yes, we we can. If we make it a very special circumstance in the child's life, and again, what we put energy in is what kind of grows. So, the more relaxed, uh, everyday like it can be our way of dealing with that you are a donor-conceived child, the more relaxed about it the children will be. When we as human beings experience, for instance, trauma or things that make great impressions on us, for instance, in schools, if you have no friends, If you uh, lose one of your parents, if something, other sorts of devastating things happen. When a child experiences that, the occupation with being a donor child sometimes grow. So what, again, what you're occupied with will, will sometimes uh, grow when you have life situations that makes you interested in that. Where do I belong? Do I have anything going for me? Have I got friends? What about my family? Is it big enough? Uh, can I lose everything? So when we tap into existential themes in our lives, the donor theme can kind of be switched on, even though that it's not in everyday life so important for the child. To me... This looks like every other aspect of parenting. If you do too little, it's bad. If you do too much, it's bad. And finding that balance will take you a lifetime. But at least we try, right? I just felt like I needed one final piece of the puzzle. What do we call him? The donor. I asked Nete and Lerke, who are both donor-conceived, and they both advised me to always follow the language of the donor-conceived person. Here's Nete. When I explain my situation, I think I most often use the term donor, but I do like the term biological dad 
better simply because I have an anonymous biological father. Um, so I feel like he's a stranger to me, yet I share half of his DNA. And so to make him less of a stranger, like using a term that is more personal in a way. And because this might sound stupid, but, but to me that makes half of my DNA, you know, more or well, less like strange DNA. And so I like using the term biological father. I learned from Nida that you don't have to settle on one term. You can switch between donor, biological father, or whatever feels right, depending on the setting and your mood. As it turns out, Lerke does the same, even though she has three dads to name. Her donor, the father by her side at birth, and her bonus dad, who practically raised her. I think for me it's donor or biological, but not father or dad, because to me that's something else. Uh, that's like the one that cares for you and not the biological product or what you could say, material. Yeah, so you have that differentiation in, in yeah, your yeah. mind. Yeah, exactly. I loved Nita and Lerke's take on this. Just follow the donor-conceived person. If they want to use a specific term, use that. If they switch the term, follow their lead. No questions asked. Until our daughter gets older, Christopher and I, of course, have to find a go-to term and make a story that makes sense to our family. At least for now. But we know we need to be ready to listen, to update the story and switch the title of the donor once our daughter is able to share her preferences. Here's Nita, elaborating on that very matter. I say, if I had to give any advice, obviously we talk a lot about being open and telling the child at an early age, and that's definitely the first advice. But then don't stop the openness at that. Be open to every feeling, every opinion, every thought that your child may have. Also, when your child doesn't only think about this when they are a child, they grow up to be an adult. And so be open-minded throughout the life of your child. Um, and also be open to use the terms uh, and the labels that your child has. And this may challenge some parents who likes the term donor a bit more. But the thing is, at least for me, um, I don't use the term biological father to take anything away from my father or because I think less of him because I don't. Um, for me, it's just more comfortable to say biological father. So it's completely personal. So if your child grows up to liking the term donor father, try to incorporate that and don't force your own label on your child. Um, I know in the beginning, you probably have to use a specific label so that your child can you know, understand what is going on. But then I think it could be a, a good idea to try to listen to what your ch child says or maybe have a conversation, multiple conversations even about this so that your child feels that they can also be open with you. It shouldn't just be the parents being open with the child. The child also has to get the possibility of, uh, and the opportunity to be open with the parents to create that open forum. If you manage to create that open forum, remember that it's just as normal to have strong feelings about being donor-conceived 
as it is to not feel much at all. As a parent of a donor-conceived person, you need to be open to all kinds of reactions. Whatever emotion comes up, whatever term or story you choose for your donor-conceived family, you need to be ready to update it and to repeat it for years to come. Here's a last word from Haley, twin mom, explaining why. I've spoken to many donor-conceived people um, from all walks of life, from all types of disclosures, whether they've known from young or late disclosure like myself. And one of the things that everyone is very consistent on is that it's not just a one-time event that you tell your children. It is it's continual. Um, and like like you said, some of the psychologists that you've speak, spoken to, and I would 100% support that. I think it's an ongoing process. Um, what I think, if you do speak to any of your psychologist experts, is to sort of say, well, I think there's a huge gap in terms of trying to explain how you continue that story through the ages, um, through the different stages of development of children. Because I think, you know, going from five to teenage years, um, you know, they start to understand things more, um, you know, maybe start to think of things a little bit more. Um, I think they call it like concrete thinking, don't they? And then there's different stages of child development. And I think there is there is a huge gap in the donor conception sort of literature, if you like, in terms of support for parents and how to continue the conversation. I, for one, will do my best to continue the conversation with my daughter. However, it's not only parents and children who will be part of that conversation if you're truly open. On the next episode, we continue telling as we look at the world around us. When you, like the children and parents contributing to this podcast, decide to be open about your donor conception, you get reactions. I don't think it is anybody's business how you get your children. Really don't. And people should just butt out. It might not be other people's business, but they sure like to share their thoughts on the matter. More on that in episode number three. You have listened to the podcast Being Donor Conceived. Stories from Children and Parents. I'm your host, Sabrina Witting Seerup, and my producer is Annette Hellström. We want to thank our sponsor, European Sperm Bank. And if you want to know more about being a donor conceived family, I highly recommend going to European Sperm Bank's blog. They have tons of interviews and other resources to check out. I want to end by sending a big thanks to all the lovely people sharing their stories and knowledge with us in these episodes. This podcast would have never existed without them. Or you, our listeners. <laughs>